Hi there. Welcome to another edition of Complete Sports Media's podcast. I'm your host, Darren Campbell. Well, we always have really amazing guests and lots of special people join us uh, all the time here on Complete Sports Media. But today we've got an extra special guest. Really excited to be able to present Jim Hewson to my viewers and listeners. It's going to be a fantastic conversation. We've been waiting to see Jim for the past five months as the hockey had to take a hiatus for the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, yeah, really excited to have Jim join us. Uh, He's a Hockey Hall of Famer, uh, legendary broadcaster, has broadcasted for over 40 years in Canada, covered the Canucks, the Leafs, the Expos, the Blue Jays, been the lead anchor at Hockey Night in Canada since 2009. A legendary voice, legendary guy, and a wealth of knowledge. He's about to enter the NHL bubble in the coming week, and we can't wait to yeah, talk to him about that and uh, many other things. Let's uh, bring him into the conversation. Okay, yeah, I think we've, uh, yeah, we've got Jim on the line here. So uh, yeah, thanks so much, Jim. I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy about to enter into the NHL bubble in a little under a week. Uh, how are you feeling? Uh, it's been a long time without hockey. Um, you, are you excited that you're finally getting to do the job that you're the best at? Um, I, I appreciate you saying that. Well, as you can see behind me, uh, in the Okanagan Valley right now, there's not a cloud in the sky and it's about 30 degrees and the water temperature is warmed up and the golf course is in impeccable fashion. So I'm a little bit reluctant to leave, but on the other side, uh, I'm I'm happy for the National Hockey League that uh, it looks like they're going to be able to salvage something out of this season because I, I understand how devastating it would be economically for the league to lose this season and we don't know what's on the horizon so we don't even know what's coming for next season so my feeling is that if the players can uh, healthily get to the bubble uh, that starts next Sunday I think they're going to be okay I think players in the National Hockey League are disciplined enough I think there's enough leadership it's I mean it's the quintessential team game and you don't mess around and I don't think a lot of guys will so I think if they can get there, it's going to be fine. This next few days, I believe, will be crucial in terms of getting to the bubble. I think they're going to get there, and it looks like it's going to happen. And when it does, it might turn into one heck of a fun tournament to watch. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be. Uh, yeah, uh, hockey fans like myself and many of my viewers and listeners are uh, yeah really excited. Uh, we've had a long wait to, uh, to see live hockey and, uh, you know, to miss out on the playoffs, it just doesn't seem right. So I'm glad they were able to put this together. Uh, were you surprised that the NHL decided uh, on the two hub cities being in Canada? I know there was, you know, a lot of um, COVID-19 uh, cases down in the U.S., so that was probably the main reason. But uh, there was a lot of speculation on the other hub cities being in the U.S. Um, how, you know, how surprised were you what, that it was Toronto and Edmonton? You know what, I, I, I congratulate the National Hockey League for their decision. I'm not surprised that they did it because when, from the moment that the league took its pause in March, uh, they said all the right things about health and safety would be first. First before anything. So if that's the case, then they made the right decision. 
uh, there are a lot of people who would it would have been easier for them to pick a couple of American hubs because there aren't the quarantine restrictions. They could have got the players into some cities in the United States a lot easier. But there are some great advantages in Canada, not the least of which is that it's been a lot safer. Um, that we've had at the community level, at the provincial level, and at the federal level, I think we've had terrific cooperation to do what we need to prevent the spread of the disease. Um, it's still there for us, so they need the bubble, but I think they picked a couple of good places. I think they picked the right jurisdictions where the decision was made, made to allow them to play, not because it's, yeah, we're open, come on in, because they had the protocols in place and they'd taken all the precautions and they seem to have that are necessary to prevent the spread of this to the public and to the players from the public while they're in the bubble. So I think, yes, they made the right decision. It's going to be fascinating to watch. I think we're all uh, really interested to watch. And it's going to be so different because during the playoffs, you usually travel so much. Everybody's and, and that's one of the, fatiguing parts of the playoffs for everybody is, you know, you're dragging a suitcase around an airport for 60, 70 days. Um, even the players on charter flights, they're long and they're arduous and it, you know, you're changing time zones. Everybody's going to be in the same place and should be fresh. And so the hub situation I think is good and Edmonton and Toronto will be good hosts. And, and if, and the fact that everybody's healthy, uh, it seems like a lot of people are healthy. And I mean, in terms of the injuries that have healed, since the pause, um, it puts everybody on a level playing field in a place where they don't have to travel, and we should see some fantastic hockey. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I think this will be an unprecedented season. Uh, there won't be guys banged up. Uh, there'll be a lot of health, like you mentioned. Uh, it's um, you know, it's an arduous grind that 82 game regular season schedule, and a lot of guys are really hurt and worn out from a long season, especially the young players that haven't played that many games uh, in their previous careers. Um, do you expect the level of hockey to be uh, extremely high because of that case? I think it'll get there. Uh, I'm not sure what to expect at the start. There's a lot of variables. I mean, the players are skating now. And I think they'll be in great shape. And you mentioned their health. And they've got, you know, for the most part, injured players are coming back. And there will be other injuries. That's just a, that's just a byproduct of the game. There will be people who are hurt. I, I don't know what to expect because this is unprecedented. So I'm just guessing that um, the exhibition game that each of these teams gets will be fascinating because it's not like the preseason games that we see normally in September where you see four guys who might actually make the team and the other guys know they're going to the minors and the four guys who are actually going to be on the team could care less about the game and play at half throttle because they just don't want to get hurt. The exhibition game um, – for all of these teams is going to be extremely important because they get to play an NHL caliber opponent that isn't an inner squad game. And they've only got one game to prepare for a best of five series. So that should, even the exhibition game should be interesting. And then I think the players will have to feel their way through what the atmosphere is like, because I've always said there, and that the, the first shift of the first game of the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs is one of the most fascinating few seconds in sport because the players are so amped up. The fans are crazy. And, you know, coaches just got to get through the first shift for everybody and try and settle everybody down. And it's, it's one of the most exciting moments in all of sport. 
but it won't be there. I'm not sure what it'll be like. What's that first shift going to be like for everybody? What's the, you know, what's the contact going to be like without the fans going crazy and one shift feeding off another because of that? What's it going to be like? What, when the first goal is scored and there's no sounds in the rink, what's it going to be like on the next shift? Because guys usually get so fired up when their team scores a goal. So it's a night at the improv for all of us. And, you know, for, for fans and for broadcasters and for all the players, we're all going to try and figure this out together. And that in itself is kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Night at the Improv. Um, yeah, you're going to have to do some improvisation. Uh, you know, usually you uh, do a bit of a layout quite often when there's a big goal scored. You, you know, let the fans take over, let the whole feeling of the building, uh, the energy come into it. Uh, I guess that's going to be one of your hardest challenges is to try to keep that energy level up and to, you know, be able to not have those moments. Uh, you're going to have to, you know, fill those moments with your voice and, and, you know, breaking it down with your color person. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I know you've done some games with very little fans, but uh, this is just going to be such a new challenge for you. Yeah, it's going to be very different. I, I, and I don't know, I can't honestly say, that I have any idea what it's going to be like. And, and that, in, that in itself is kind of exciting because you don't, don't get many opportunities for unique in the broadcasting industry, right? It just, there's not, it's, it can be same old and you know, I mean, it's exciting and you know what to expect at the start of the playoffs. We've never, we've never seen anything or worked in any environment like this. So in that sense, it's going to be quite fascinating. Um, yeah, I do like to lay out a lot and let the fans take over. We're going to try some different things. And I, I would say to all the fans and people who are going to watch all of this and listen to it, that it's probably going to be different by, we, by the time we get to the 1st of October than it will be at the 1st of August. Because it is a night at the improv. We will try things like um, players' goal songs, teams' goal songs. There'll be music involved. There'll be probably some canned fan uh, noise of some sort because the game might need might need a little background it might feel a little better with a little background sound we'll try we have all sorts of uh, microphones on the ice so you'll be able to hear some chatter although the expletives will be delayed um, and they'll be beeped out um, but you'll still hear some of the chatter from the ice you'll be able to hear the sticks and the skates but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. From my standpoint, I'm just going to sort of accept it with open arms and, and try and figure it out as we go along and hope that, uh, and as I think as the games go on, it's gonna, it, what it needs is a game right now. What we need is a game to see what the atmosphere is like to, for us and for everybody else. And then we'll take stock after that and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's a whole new world, and uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll just see. Uh, I assume that you're going to be doing the uh, Montreal-Pittsburgh series and the Toronto-Columbus series. Uh, is that is that going to be your only requirement every day other than watching all the games? Are you just doing one game a day, or do they have you doing more than that? Well, they'll split up. Uh, there is, I think, one day in that preliminary round or the qualifying round where Toronto and Montreal play on the same day, so there'll be one game, one day with two games. But for the most part, it'll be a game a day because uh, wisely they've put, for the most part, Toronto and Montreal in prime time on alternating days. 
because they're two popular teams that draw great audiences in Canada. So that makes sense to do that. Um, but it's going to be fascinating. And, you know, we have to all remember that we're still in the middle of a pandemic and we have to be careful and probably more careful now than we were in March and April because things are loosening up and people are going outside and people are starting to get together and cases are starting to mount. So my feeling is that uh, I'll be very isolated um, in my little apartment and I'll be watching games all day long, going to the rink to broadcast a game a day, maybe two. But um, it'll, be a, it'll be indoors for the most part, watching as many games as possible. And they're staggered enough so that it's even better than the, the springtime normal playoff where, you know, you have to pick your game because there might be three on at the same time or two on at the same time. These, these hours are all going to be staggered. So if you're a real addict for all of this stuff, you can watch everything. And there will be people who are like that, and I'll just be one of them, where I'll be parked in front of a, at a desk in front of a TV, watching and consuming as much as I can to prepare for what's down the line. Yeah. And I will be in Toronto to start this. So watching the Maple Leafs in Columbus and Pittsburgh and Montreal to get started, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Great, great, yeah. Can't wait. Um, yeah, off the top, I mentioned that you're uh, a Hockey Hall of Famer. Uh, congratulations on that. Uh, fantastic uh, accomplishment. Uh, the Foster Hewitt Award and being in that broadcast wing. Um, tell me about that experience with your family, uh, being able to be inducted and enjoying all the amazing uh, people in the hockey world. That must have been just such a thrill to have your family share that with you. It was. It was an exhausting weekend because there was just too much going on. But uh, it was uh, it's a spectacular honor. Uh, it, it's a hard weekend because I don't do me very well. But I was very happy that my family could be around and enjoy and meet a lot of the people that they would never otherwise meet. Um, we had an event at a downtown bar and restaurant the night before the induction and uh, it allowed my family to meet all of the people that I work with because in this business, you, the people that you work with don't live in the same town. I mean, you know, people from all over the country and they get together to put the games on and they become your best friends because you live with them on the road and you're traveling with them, but your family doesn't know them because it's not like they can drop over to your house all the time. So this was an occasion where we could all get together and they could meet those people and I could pay a great deal of thanks to all of them for the support that they've given me in all of these years. So that was, that was pretty cool to be able to say thank you to a lot of people to, um, to be able to get together with them and kind of surreal to see a, a plaque and a picture in the hockey hall of fame. Um, but I, it, it was a truly great honor and a great weekend and re I really needed a nap by the time it was over. <laughs> yeah, it must've been exhausting. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, people pulling at your time there, I'm sure, over that week. Yeah, so um, yeah, you've won uh, that, you know, that award. You've got uh, many Canadian Gemini Awards and a Canadian Screen Award, a lot of really amazing honorees. Those are um, honors. Uh, those are obviously individual awards, but you're part of a team. Um, you, you go into a broadcast situation. There's hosts. There's color analysts. There's audio and video guys. There's um, you know, your camera people, it's, it's a big team that put on these, these productions and um, you work with some of the best people in the world here in Canada. Um, you know, how proud is it and how great is it to be able to work with the best? 
It's fantastic, and, and and I'm glad you pointed that out because it is it's like an all star team. Um, what you want to be able to do, I think, in any profession, to do it at the highest level that you possibly can, is to be able to trust the people that are around you. So that when you sit down to do your job, all you have to do is worry about being the best at your job, knowing that you're surrounded by people who will be the best at theirs. So you don't have to, it doesn't have to be all consuming in that you're worried that the audio man isn't good enough or the, 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 the tape operator won't get you the replay that you need. And so there's so many people, we have like 45 to 60 people, depending on the depth of the broadcast and depending on whether it's a playoff game or not that are involved in it. And the people, the crew that I work on is like second to none. There is not a better broadcast crew in the entire world that, that I, I work with on a regular basis. So um, it is a, it is a true team game when it gets onto the television and the finished product is the result of so many people's long hours and hard work and many, many years of learning to be great at their profession. So I never lose sight of the fact that this, well, Craig Simpson, who I work with all the time and I are front and center and you can hear our voices and we're sort of the face of the broadcast. We're that's, we're just Statler and Waldorf up there. It's uh, all the Muppets in the back that are doing most of the work that they're, they're doing a great job. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you could point that out. Um, there was a little controversy that happened uh, about a week or two ago that um, said that NBC was going to have uh, 50 of the, of their broadcast people coming up and um, taking a lot of these positions. Um, will you have the, that team? Or uh, will it be a lot of uh, unfamiliar faces from that NBC crew that uh, you're, you're going to be working with? Well, actually, Darren, we'll end up with both because uh, it's very much this, this tournament is going to be very much like an Olympics. Um, so you have a world feed in each hub in Edmonton and Toronto. There will be a world feed and there's a crew that provides that. So cameraman, audio, production crew in the mobile uh, they'll provide that feed, but then that feed is then sent to what is uh, called a domestic broadcast production studio, which will be in Toronto, and our crew takes it from there. So we will have the NBC crew is providing the world feed in Toronto. They'll provide the basic needs, which is supposed to be, and at the Olympic level, it's always the same. It's a completely unbiased look at the game, right? It's just the pictures of the game, and then our domestic crew will take those pictures. We have a few cameras in the building that we can augment that production with our own graphics, that sort of thing. So we can domesticize what we get from the world feed and put our own stamp on it. And that's the way it'll work in Edmonton as well. Um, so it's not uncommon for this to happen. I understand that people, some people thought, and I don't disagree with them that it should have been a Canadian crew in Toronto because that's our Mecca. Toronto is our New York. Uh, would the Canadian broadcast company ever go down and do this feed in New York? I doubt it, but it is what it is. And they're really good technical people there. I have no, I have no doubt that they'll do a tremendous job and give us exactly what we need. Um, but it's, it's very similar to the World Cup or the Olympics. Um, that's, the way it, that's the way it's always done. So it's not something that's uncommon to any of us. We've all worked in this environment and we'll figure it out in no time. Excellent. Good to hear. Yeah, that's, 
That's great. I, I don't think a lot of people knew that. So I'm glad you clarified that. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I was disappointed because, uh, you know, I've met many of those guys over the, over the time I've been in the business and, you know, I didn't want them to be out of work and I'm glad, you know, you have a lot of your team still. So uh, you did mention Craig Simpson, a fantastic uh, color analyst and partner of yours for uh, so many years. Uh, tell me about your relationship and uh, how much he brings to the broadcast every time. Uh, he's more importantly, he's just a great friend that we spend a lot of time together. And so that leads to, I mean, when we're together, we're constantly talking about the game and breaking down what we've seen uh, and what might happen in a game. That's usually, uh, it usually never turns out the way you think it will, but um, we kind of think the game the same way. We're always looking for the same kind of things. You're you know, always trying to find why. It's always asking the question, why? Why did that happen? Why did that play? Why did that guy get a great scoring chance? What broke down there? Why did they score that goal? Where did the mistake happen that led to that goal? Um, and I think that way, I think he thinks that way. We're, uh, we've been together long enough now that we're always pretty much on the same page. And at the end of the night, we ask the question, did we tell an accurate story of the game? Did we tell the story of the game? And more often than not, I think we, we find a way to do that between the two of us. We have a great, great communication. We watch a lot of games together. Um, we communicate while we're watching games during the week, for example, and just to, just to keep on top of it. So it's a great relationship. I, I know I've, had, I, I've been lucky enough to have partners in baseball and in hockey over the years that have become great friends. That's not always the case in broadcast scenarios there's sometimes two taxis that leave the building when the game is over that's never the case uh, with the people I've worked with and with Craig um, when the game is over we're together we're pals but we'll be six feet apart when we watch the game right yeah yeah that social distancing will still be there but you bet but, uh, yeah but um, yeah well I'm glad you, you talked about Craig um, I want to do kind of a rapid fire thing right now. I want to give sure. you uh, some names of some people that you have worked with as color analysts. Uh, I want to go back to uh, some of the early days. Um, tell me about working with John Garrett. Great, funny guy, uh, great friend, and uh, wonderful sharing guy, and the absolute worst eater in the entire world. The only thing we couldn't do is go to dinner together all of the time because he has never used utensils in his life. <laughs> That's great. That's hilarious. That's so, so funny. I think I might have heard that before. Um, okay, tell me about uh, some guys that you said became really close friends of yours. Uh, Gary Green and Roger Nielsen. Uh, yeah, th those, those guys were really, you know, legendary, epic uh, color analysts. Friends and mentors. Um, I moved, I was living in Toronto uh, when I started to work with Gary, just after he had coached. I knew who Roger was and he became uh, a close friend because we had, he'd been coaching in Vancouver and I was working around the Canucks at the time when he coached them uh, in 1982. So I knew Roger and Gary, they both lived out in the Peterborough area and because of them, um, I moved out of Toronto and moved on to Westview Point Road, just a couple of doors down from Roger, and Gary lived right there. We traveled together. We watched games together. We worked together. And more importantly, what I learned from both of them is understanding the game. 
there was always this, uh, you know, I, I was like, I think a lot of people are, who are young and in the industry now think that the most important part of our job is to memorize the player names and know who's on the ice. That's actually the easiest part of the job. Everybody has redundancies in their working life that you remember. Um, things that you do every day that you do, just it's really easy um, because you're doing them all the time. That's what memorizing player names is like. So what they taught me and what I learned from them is the game. And I used to spend hours and hours with them talking, debating, having fun, conjoling each other, but learning the game and understanding the way the game was played and how it was changing. And Roger was such an innovator and he shared all of that. So great memories in the, especially in the early part of my career with both Raj and Greener. Nice. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Those guys are, yeah, so great. And, uh, yeah, Roger Nielsen was an innovator and is always, um, you know, talked about so highly because of his innovation and doing video and, and so, so much of that. Um, are the Canucks the only team that actually have two coaches with statues out front of their arena? As far as you know, any of the stadiums or arenas that you've ever been to? Yeah, uh, I don't think there's two. I can't think of a place where there's two. Um, no, not off the top of my head. No. Yeah, that's kind of a unique situation. Uh, two legendary guys uh, yeah. coaching the Canucks and uh, taking them to the Stanley Cup Finals and uh, yeah, just being able to have such a huge impact on the sport. Um, Pat Quinn, um, you know, one of the legendary guys. And you know, I'm really glad that you got an opportunity to get to know Roger even, even deeper than just a, a coach-broadcaster um, relationship. Yeah, he's, I, uh, I openly called him the goofiest man in the world. Um, but he was an innovator and a great friend and he, you wouldn't believe how far his tentacles go in hockey, even to this day, how many people he touched and they in turn touched other people, taught them about not only about the game, but about life and living and just a, he was just a, a great, great man and friend, even though he was as goofy as can be, he I remember one time going to a uh, black tie dinner with him in Toronto one time and uh, we went from Peterborough into Toronto and he got to the curb and he realized he didn't have any buttons for his tuxedo. Like he <laughs> left all the buttons for the shirt and the, the cuffs. Oh crap. What am I going to do? I haven't got any buttons. And he was, that's the sort of thing that would happen to him all the time. We were always afraid that he was going to fall asleep at the wheel of his car because he was uh, an insomniac and in that if he was watching games and working, he would stay up all night to do it and then hop in his car and take his dog to the golf course and do a 18 hole round in two and a half hours and then be back in front of videos. He was an amazing guy, but a, an absolutely wonderful guy who I, I think of and a lot of people in hockey think of all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I hear, I hear you. Definitely. Um, that, that, that's nice to hear that little snippet of a road story. Can you tell me your funniest uh, road story? Is there something that, uh, you can remember that comes to mind uh, pretty quickly that you're able to share with us something that makes you oh, laugh and you, you share it on dinner parties and things like that. So there's so probably a few stories that I wouldn't share probably a whole lot of stories that I wouldn't share. Uh, <laughs> no, you know what? Life on the road is pretty interesting. It's a, um, there's always fun stories. There's, you know, we have, when you travel with a group of people and you've got off days and you've got, and you're together for months there's always hilarious things that happen there's great golf games people organize some of the craziest things from go-karts to uh to hikes to golfing it's uh 
Yeah, I can't think of anything specific, but you make the best of life on the road. Otherwise, you'd go crazy spending all of your time in a hotel room. So you got to get out. You got to do things. You got to be with people. And there's, I can tell you that there's, uh, in the group that I travel with, there is no shortage of laughter. And that's a wonderful thing. It's uh, it's good to have a smile on your face, even after like 45 straight days on the road when you haven't seen your family and things can get uh, pretty depressing because you're, you know, oh my God, this series is going to go seven games and no sweep this time. But uh, you always, the groups that I've been around always make the best of it and have the best of times. Yeah, that's, that's terrific. Yeah. You're very lucky in that department. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. very nice to be around a really great group of people and lots of laughs and uh, it just makes uh, life fun and uh, your career really rewarding. So uh, we, re- we touched on a lot of the hockey play by uh, color analysts, sorry. And uh, now I'd like to turn to baseball a little bit. You were able to broadcast the Blue Jays and the Expos and Buck Martinez uh, was an amazing color analyst for many years who became a great play-by-play guy as well. Uh, tell me about your relationship with Buck. Uh, still to this day, he's a great friend. And when I go to the Toronto hub, he'll be there calling baseball. So uh, we'll probably be staying in the same building and have a chance to, to visit on occasion. Uh, just a really good, solid friend uh, who, like Kenny Singleton, who I worked with uh, at the Montreal Expos games before I moved over to the Blue Jays, um, he opened a lot of doors. Like Buck knows everybody in baseball knew every manager. And when I started in the American League, uh, uh, I mean, Kenny did this for me in the National League as a, an all-star player and a great guy. Um, I didn't know anybody. I, I knew the game, felt like I knew the game, was learning the game and got a chance to broadcast it, but didn't know the players and the coaches. And what at the start of it for, for Kenny and then for Buck, what they did was open doors for me, took me into the manager's office and introduced me and got, let me get to know the managers of the teams and helped me get to know players and um, just was so sharing in their introduction uh, of the world that they'd lived in for so long and brought me in to be a part of it. And then from there, you know, I could cultivate my own relationships and that sort of thing. But the relationship with, uh, with Buck, was one uh, very similar to the one that I have to this day with Greg Simpson in that uh, nobody, we're not competing. We're not competing for information. We're sharing it. Just want to get the show right. Want to get the game right. Want to be accurate in what we do and have a blast, not only on the air, but off the air um, as friends. And so there's, there's a, there's a great reward when you work with somebody and then you stop working with them. And 20 years later, there's still a best friend. So that's Buck. Oh, great. Yeah. Nice to hear. Yeah. He he's always seems like a fantastic guy and uh, yeah, just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, you know, seems to know everybody in, the, in baseball, um, very highly respected. Um, uh, I, I, I want to speak about another Buck. Uh, Buck Rogers was the um, manager when you're in Montreal, a legendary guy who um, was able to bring a, you know, a lot of really talented ball players up and, um, during the time you were there, the Expos had some of the best success that they ever had. Uh, must have been really nice to get an opportunity to talk to him on a daily basis and to be able to cover that team with uh, so many stars. It was uh, that was fantastic. That was my introduction to baseball and uh, to pro- professional baseball. So when I talked my way into the job as the play-by-play man on TSN for Expos baseball, there were a lot of people that thought 
because I'd never broadcast baseball that I'd never seen a baseball game. Uh, but you know, so I had to prove a few people wrong about that. But um, from the moment that I got there, Buck Rogers was just the most welcoming, bigger than life guy. And there were so many neat guys on that team. His, uh, his pitching coach, Larry Bernarth, Bear, was um, a wealth of knowledge and shared it all. Um, so I could, I could really go and tap into his knowledge of pitches and pitching and things like that. And then there were some great guys on the team. Tim Wallach was a fantastic player and a great guy. Bryn Smith is a pitcher, <clears throat> excuse me, was so approachable and so sharing of his profession. Um, Tim Burke, who was the reliever, is a friend to this day. I, I was walking through a Buffalo airport about no, it wasn't Buffalo. It was actually in Washington, D.C. But the person I ran into is from Buffalo and lives there. Joe Hesketh was a pitcher on that Expos team. And this is, I bet I hadn't seen him in 15 years. And I hear somebody calling me across the airport. And it took me a second to realize who it was. And it was Joe Hesketh. And he was on that team as well. There were some really interesting guys who... Like, I wouldn't say that we all became best friends or anything, but we had a wonderful working relationship and they were a very open group. And that was a reflection of Buck Rogers' personality. He was such an open and welcoming guy and communicator with his players. And I don't think, even though baseball is a more individual sport than hockey is, um, there's still a team aspect to it. And Buck was the leader of that. And he was a leader of men. And he was a guy who would put people together. But I, my relationship with him was fantastic. He taught me so much about the game, introduced me to a lot of things that, that I didn't know and would share like a vast, vast knowledge. There's another, another buck who was a catcher. Um, and they just have, uh, they have an interesting perspective on the game. They know so much about both sides of the game, the defensive part, the pitching part, uh, and, and the hitting part. So I have great memories of my days broadcasting Expos game the games, uh, not the least of which was going to Montreal a lot. I loved that place in the summer. Yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic city. In the summer, uh, I try to go there as much as I can. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, yeah, some of, the, some of the players that you had the opportunity to, to cover, Andre Dawson, Tim Raines, Tim Wallach, um, there was Larry Walker, obviously. Uh, uh, you know, just a, an, an incredible, incredible array of talent there. And they just, they just could never get the stadium that they needed, uh, couldn't get that fan support and save the team. It, uh, it broke a lot of people's hearts. Uh, it must have broke your heart because, uh, you know, you had such a closeness with that organization. Yeah, and you know what? I, the stadium was so bad. Um, and, and I think there was great fan support there and would be again. But it's about where you go to watch the game. And the Big O was never a good place to go and watch a game. The city itself was so receptive to the team and there were a lot of things that went into the moving but uh yeah it was it was sad to see them go i think that there'll be a day and it may be further off because of what's gone on in our world now but there will be a day you know whether it's sharing games with tampa or whether they get their own team again uh, there'll be a day when montreal has baseball again because it has a long rich history of having baseball and those were those were great teams i mean i it was so neat to see that Larry Walker is going into the Baseball Hall of Fame. I was broadcasting the games when he got called up and had a bit of a kinship with him because we were both West Coast guys. Um, and 
uh, just you knew from the day that he arrived what a talent he was. He's one of the first guys, one of the only guys that I've ever broadcast a game where he was playing in right field and threw out a runner at first base on what should, well, any other outfielder is a base hit. Uh, just had this amazing arm. And he could rake at the plate, as we all found out. But, uh, and a really good guy. Um, yeah. And that was another trait of those teams. Just really good, solid guys. Yeah. Yeah, Larry and, and I ended up forging a little bit of a friendship as well because I was a West Coast guy and he was from here. And anytime I crossed paths with him, I made sure to mention uh, where I was yeah. from. And it, uh, it seemed to warm his heart a little bit and give me a little more time than he would have if I was just from uh, somewhere else in, in the, in, on the continent and from Canada or the U.S. Um, I, I know you switched uh, to the Blue Jays and you, you went in at, at a time when uh, – they were reaching unprecedented heights. Uh, they had won some division titles a few years before, but suddenly they were putting it together. And, and uh, you were there when, you know, they won these World Series and you were able to, you know, call a lot of the, these games. Uh, tell me about the, the year that uh, Whamco came together, uh, White, Alomar, uh, Molitor, Carter, and Olerud. Uh, you know, what, a, what an amazing lineup. What a, what a semblance that Pat Gillick was put to get, be able to put together, semblance of players. And, um, yeah, just um, amazing, amazing talent in baseball hit there. Wow, where to start? It was such a good team. And that was coming off a year where they'd won the World Series. Um, they were, there was so much about that team that was fascinating to watch. I would write Whamco in my, in my scorebook first thing in the morning because I knew that that's what the lineup would be uh, in the afternoon. And I mean, Devon White was such an incredible center fielder. Some, some days didn't matter who was in right or left. He just covered the whole field. Um, Robbie Alomar knew he was the best second baseman in baseball and played like it. Uh, Paul Molitor was a really interesting guy because he was so approachable. And he'd talk hitting all day long. He's an old-time baseball player who just hung around the ballpark. He was there early. He'd leave late. That's what he did. And he knew that that was a chance for him to win. Just a wonderful guy. I would say Joe Carter is the guy, if you were trying to explain to somebody who didn't know anything about baseball and you wanted to teach them what a cleanup hitter is, show them what Joe Carter did. And then there was Alomar, or uh, excuse me, Old Road. yeah. John is uh, one of the nicest men I've ever met in a sport. Just a really easygoing guy. Well, there'd be robust things going on in a locker room and lots of noise sometimes. And they were a pretty business-like team, so it wasn't like there was a cacophony of noise when you walked into the Blue Jays locker room. But John would be quietly sitting reading a book, and then he'd just go out and punish a right-handed pitcher all night long. If you ever got behind him in the count, he'd just rake. Um, and that summer, he flirted with 400. Uh, when, when batting average still meant something, uh, he, it was just so amazing to watch. So that team would – they'd have days. They were like the uh, hockey's Edmonton Oilers of the 80s where it looked like they were mailing it in one day and they'd get behind a few runs and then all of a sudden Whamco would come alive and they'd score, they'd have, a, they'd have a hit around inning and they'd be in the lead and then they'd turn it over to the bullpen. And a year before they'd had Dwayne Ward setting up uh, Tom Hankey and then Ward took over as the closer and oftentimes uh, it was other guys that, that would, would pitch to get them there. But in those two years, <clears throat> they were a seven-inning ball team. You couldn't get into their you couldn't get into the bolt pen. So if you didn't get them in seven innings, you weren't getting the Blue Jays. You weren't not likely, and they won ninety five times. 
they were their pitching was great. Pat Henkin was wonderful. Juan Guzman was just a treat to watch uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons because he was all over the place. But man, he could throw. And and Ward had what forty five saves, I think. So they were. Um, that was a fascinating year. I felt fortunate to be there, and I didn't. It, it's not lost on me how significant it was in in baseball, in the baseball world, that for that period of time, there was never a meaningless game. There, you know, they played for about four years. They were one of the, if not the best team in baseball. And so there were never any dog days of summer with those teams because they were always in a race and they were usually leading the race. Yeah, yeah, they sure were. Yeah, uh, have so many great memories. And over this pandemic, they've been showing a, a ton of footage from, from those days. And it's yeah. been really nice to reminisce and, and remember all the amazing moments. And, and like you say, they could come back on, on any deficit and uh, take over a game and, and win it. And yeah, it must have been a hard... Um, decision to walk away from baseball I know you know you would be away from your young family for a long time doing baseball and hockey um it must have been one of the toughest decisions you had had to ever make to just focus on one sport not as tough as you think uh, because I knew at the time that the overlap in the seasons was becoming so great that it was really hard to do both um I had one spring in I think it was 93 where in the month of April, I did 29 straight games in the same number of days, all in different cities. So I'd switch from baseball to hockey one night. And I was just, at the end of that month, I thought, this is madness. You just can't do this. Um, but at the same time, when I made the decision in 1994, uh, the job in Vancouver opened up because Jim Robson retired. And uh, I had always wanted to move my family back to the West Coast thought that they would truly enjoy it, wanted to live back in the West Coast. Not that I had a bad time in the East. It was wonderful. It was terrific for my career, but I'm a Western guy. I've always I've lived in BC most of my life. And so I wanted to get back to British Columbia. And there were few jobs that I would have left for, but the job in Vancouver to take over from Jim Robson was so prestigious because of what he did to it and how he built it up that it made eminent sense to me. And, uh, as it turns out, it's been a pretty good decision. I'm still living in the West, still doing hockey. And, and then the decision between baseball and hockey was probably the tougher one. But, you know, there's some simple reasons that you make decisions like that on occasion. And one of them would be I thought about uh, baseball being a wonderful game, but they insist on playing every day all summer. And hockey is a wintertime sport where I could be off in the summer with my family and thought that was a really good idea. And so that was part of the decision as well. It's worked out okay. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, well, we're happy you made that decision because it was amazing that you were able to come in and, and step in for a legendary voice like Jim Robson and uh, be able to you know, do, do yourself proud, do the Canucks proud. Uh, you, know, you were able to you know, take that uh, daunting task on and uh, you know, do a really fantastic job. It was a pleasure listening to you do the Canucks uh, on a full-time basis for many years. So when I was a when I was a young kid, I uh, told my family that uh, I wanted to be a broadcaster, and I specifically pointed to Jim Robson and I said, "When he retires, I'd like to take his job one day." And and uh, the very first guy that I ever met in the press box was Jim Robson, and he came up and was 
completely gracious, uh, shared so many nice stories with me and was just a, a fantastic guy. And, and uh, you ended up taking that job and, uh, you know. Sorry about that. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, jealousy, uh, I guess, uh, from, a, you know, probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of young BC kids that, uh, you know, dreamed of being a broadcaster and taking over that prestigious position. But uh, tell me about Jim Robson. Uh, you met him, obviously, in the early 80s and, uh, you know, looked at that as a potential job opportunity when he decided to step aside. Um, you know, what a, what a legendary guy, what a great guy. And, uh, yeah, it must have been fantastic for you to finally be able to take over. Uh, a friend to this day. And, uh, like, I, I, was, I loved his work. I actually um, was his understudy in the 70s when I worked at CKNW. He would do television games on Saturday, and that's what gave me an opportunity to do play-by-play. -play. I somehow talked my way into getting that job as well and, and replacing him on the radio on about you know 15 occasions. And then in the playoffs when he would do Hockey Night in Canada, I would do the radio games. And that's what got me the bug to, to do play-by-play full-time in hockey. But... Uh, Jim was a mentor and a teacher, but not like a classroom teacher because how he taught me and uh, is just by allowing me to listen, to watch how he prepared and to just kind of follow him around and see how he did the job. And to this day, the notebook that I use while a game is on is probably identical to what he had. Um, he just taught me a good way to set it up and I've never thought about changing it because it works. Um, so yeah, he was, he was really good at the job, really, really good at the job. And, uh, so that, and, and because he was so good at it, it made the Vancouver radio broadcast so good. It made it the best radio broadcast in the national hockey league. So that's the reason that job was one that people sought. Everybody wanted because he was so good at it. So he, he set the bar pretty high for everybody. And I think, uh, you know, the succession has been really good. Shorty is fantastic. Um, and Brendan Batchelor is just getting started and he's an excellent broadcaster. So, you know, you, you don't take jobs like that lightly because there's big shoes to fill and you have to work at it or because uh, you, you feel humiliated if you let it slip. Yeah, of course, yeah. I was, I was really happy to hear your voice on Rob Fay's podcast uh, that had all the Canucks play-by-play uh, mm -hmm. -play guys over the years. Uh, it was yeah. a really, really neat. Uh, um, yeah, it was really neat that he uh, put that together. And um, I hadn't realized that there was that many guys that had actually done it over the years. I always thought of, of Jim, yourself, and Shorty, and, you know, the, I guess a couple of the new guys. But, um, yeah, he did a fantastic job. Uh, I'm so glad that you, you were part of that. That yeah, was cool. It was, uh, uh, I just loved, I, it, those are, they've been great days. So it's always fun to reminisce a little bit. It's great. Yeah, very, very much so. So um, I heard you remark once that uh, you were in uh, New York for 45 days straight uh, covering mm -hmm. hockey. And uh, this is going to be a pretty big stretch here that you're going to be in, in Toronto. Obviously you're from Toronto, so you're pretty familiar with the city. Um, what, what is this bubble like? Are, are you, um, you know, are you completely quarantined? Are you able to go out a, a little bit? Uh, how does it work? See, I don't have to be in the actual player bubble. Um, I can be in a media group where I will have, uh, I'll basically go to the rink every day, have a temperature check. And if I'm okay, I can go into my workspace, um, do my job and get out. 
and don't have to have contact with anybody. I'm not allowed to have any contact with people who are actually living in the bubble. Um, but I can, you know, I can talk to people on the phone. I can Zoom. Um, so I can get information that way. But I will have no contact. So basically, that allows me to be outside of the bubble so that if I want to go out for a run on the lakeshore, I can do that. And, you know, but I'll be pretty careful. I, again, I don't lose sight of the fact that we have a pandemic going on and we all need to do our part to try and flatten the curve. And I will continue to do that part. So it's going to be very different than my 45 days in New York, where I experienced what it's like to be shoulder to shoulder with millions of people all day and all night and live in the noisiest city in the world and one of the most fantastic cities in the world. This will be very different because Toronto still hasn't opened up um, and it won't up open up for me. It's going to be a very, um, probably a pretty individual life, you know, just cooking, cooking my dinner, watching hockey games and going to the rink and yeah. doing it again, Groundhog Day over and over and over and over again right. for a long period of time. Uh, your, your wife, Denise, uh, is not going to be joining? No, it's just, uh, well, who would want to leave the West Coast when the weather's this good? Um, it's, uh, you know what, it's not, it's not a very good family life that we have when we're on the road and we're working because you're so consumed with work. There's not much social that can be done. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, especially in this case, when you're in one city and there's a game every day or there's several games every day, uh, it would bore her to tears because I would be sitting in front of the television watching hockey games all day and she wouldn't want to do that. So I see, yeah, no, I, yeah. I'll, I'll go it alone. <laughs> okay, good. Well, um, behind every great man, a uh, successful man uh, is a great woman. Um, tell me about uh, that relationship. I understand that you walked into a broadcasting job and she was the first person that you met. And you've yeah. had a, a 30 year relationship now. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, talk about her key to your success and uh, everything that she's been able to provide for you. It's probably really important that Denise could care less about hockey. You know, it's, uh, she'll watch it, watch the games, watch the finals, got really interested when in the year the Canucks went to the Stanley Cup final, like everybody else in Vancouver did. But uh, yeah, she was the first person when I went in to do an audition and interview at the Canadian Sports Network, which was the parent company for Hockey Night in Canada. Um, she was the executive assistant to the person I was going in to interview with. So uh, we met, she felt sorry for me because I was living in a hotel and didn't know anybody and invited me out to dinner and join, to join some friends. And uh, yeah, that's about 30, 35 years ago. So um, yeah, we've been, been together ever since. I, I think it's really important in this position where you travel so much um, once we had our children at home that she was able to sort of be the constant and be there for our kids and to hold our family together while I gallivanted all over the world and was gone for long periods of time and missed every important moment of my kids' lives. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them. And, but she was always there. So, uh, and still is. So, and if, uh, as most, uh, husbands know, if you survive four months of uh, COVID quarantine uh, with your wife, then you've probably got a pretty good relationship. And we've got a good one going because uh, she cooks, I clean, and uh, we hang out together every day. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, there some relationships have been uh, strained and a little tense, but I'm yeah. glad yours hasn't over this pandemic. Um, uh, talk about your kids briefly. Uh, are there aspirations to follow you in your footsteps? Uh, what uh, what kind of career dreams and things uh, do they have on the horizon? Never wanted them to follow in my footsteps. And uh, 
there they um my son matt and my daughter jennifer are uh, just have turned out to be wonderful young adults who have found their own way in their own businesses and you know, graduated from high school and university and are in the working world and as most parents you just want your children to have a wonderful life and be good people and look after their friends and they're really good at that so i'm very proud of them yeah that's that's fantastic yeah yeah it's um it's wonderful that uh you know you can have such a, a solid stable family life and and be able to be a nomad uh you know touring all over uh, north america and doing your job at a high at such a high level um yeah so uh, has it ever been a chore? Has it ever been a grind this life? Or uh, have you been blessed uh, to say that it's been uh, you know, enjoyable almost every day? If I complained about it, nobody would ever listen because I watch hockey games for a living. Come on. Can't be that difficult. Um, <laughs> the travel wears you down. It's uh, especially, I mean, I chose to live on the West Coast, so that's my choice. And so my travel, work, living in the West and working in the East is not always easy. But uh, you know what, I, again, I always, if I ever have a bad day, if I ever have a, you know, missed connections and bad aircraft and a bad travel day or delays and all that sort of stuff, I constantly remind myself what I do for a living and how the game and my profession has treated me. So, yeah, I, I have zero to complain about and nobody would listen if I did. <laughs> Good. Uh, I heard you mention the the your, the best team that you ever watched uh, assembled was the team from Sochi, that Canadian team. Uh, just briefly describe how incredible it was uh, that talent. Well, they were just such a precision team, and you know they weren't the they weren't like the '87 Canada Cup teams or you know other Canada Cup teams where they just overwhelmed everybody offensively. I suppose they could have been. Uh, that's not the way Mike Babcock wanted them to play. They were precision-like in the way they played the game defensively, and they had enough scoring that they they were very comfortable in a one-goal game. I just, you know, line after line and defensive pair after defense pair and with the goaltending, that they just, one line after another, they were just fantastic. I And I just really think that there was never a doubt in my mind that they were the best team in that tournament in Sochi and that they were going to win it, unless there was an accident somewhere or unless they lost a player, you know. But even there, if they'd had serious injuries, they were so deep, they were so good. Um, and they got to the gold medal game against Sweden. I, you, know, you never know what's going to happen when a game starts. But in the back of my mind, I thought, this is such a good team, they will not lose this game. And they didn't. Uh, but it was machine-like, the way that they played the game, and they were so good at it. That in in hindsight, especially live. I mean, I watched a lot of the you know the '72 Summit Series, and then the, as I mentioned, the '87 Canada Cup, and they were fantastic. But I watched those on TV. Uh, this one I saw live, so in my mind, it was the best team I've ever watched play the game. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, yeah, just uh, ready to wrap up pretty quick here. I just want to touch on a couple things. Uh, during this pandemic, we've seen a ton of games uh, being broadcast, old highlights of games. Uh, even this morning, I heard you uh, broadcasting a game between the Bruins and the Blackhawks in 2013. Uh, you started off the, the, the day, the broadcast, by saying 85 games in 56 days. Um, and this could be the final game of the season. Um, just, uh, you know, just being able to be there 
when the Stanley Cup's produced, a uh, lifelong dream of so many of these players finally getting uh, coming to fruition, being able to skate around with their families and hoist the cup. Uh, there must be just such a special feeling for you to be there always when they're, they're presenting the Stanley Cup on that final day. It is. I have such great respect for the trophy. I have great respect for those who win it because I've watched firsthand how hard it is to win. And, you know, you, you watch the players from the first round of the playoffs and how excited they are and how, how rambunctious and how energetic. Then you see by the third round the white gaunt faces and the long beards and guys who haven't been outside for weeks because they're living in a hotel, they're at a rink, they're in a plane. They just, they just do nothing but eat, sleep, and play hockey. You realize how long it takes and how hard it is and how many people fall by the wayside because of injury. And then you see in the faces the excitement when one team finally wins it. And how, so you know how hard it is to win that trophy. And then on the other side of it, for, for guys like me, you're no different than the players in the sense that it's not as hard and it's not as arduous and it's not physically as demanding. But you always want to work. If you're ambitious and you want to be good at it, your ambition is to work on the final day of the season. You want to be there when the last game is played, just like the players. So uh, I've never lost sight of the fact that how cool that is, how much respect I have for the trophy and the people who win it. And so I just I never want the audience to lose sight of the fact that it is the best trophy in the world. It is the hardest trophy to win. And there is a reason that I've never seen such excitement, such passion when teams win the Stanley Cup and it never gets old. And, I, and the beauty of it is there's a whole bunch of small town guys and everybody who wins the trophy can't wait to, to meet with their mom and dad if they're there and their families. And it, it's, it is a real family win for anybody who wins the Stanley Cup. So uh, I never get tired of being around on the last day of the season. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're there every time, too. You, you really, um, you know, make it sound amazing. You, you, you know, you do it justice, and it's fantastic. I'm, I'm so happy that uh, you took over that role. And, you, you, you know, you and Craig should uh, you know, be very proud of yourself, the whole Hockey Night in Canada crew. I love the after hours with Scott Oak. It's my favorite uh, hour on television. Yeah, uh, me too. Yeah, so many of the, the things that you guys do is just – you know, amazing. Um, you raise hockey to a, a fantastic level and, and just uh, make us proud to be Canadian. Thank you so much for your 40 years as a broadcaster and all the things that you've been able to do. I'm glad you're a West Coast guy. It's really nice to have you uh, continuing to be in our, in our province and representing us really well. And, and uh, good luck in Toronto. Uh, I sure hope, um, you know, you can stay safe. You can um, get in there, um, do your job. Uh, you know, enjoy yourself, uh, really have a have fun time doing it, uh, make it fun for all of us. Uh, we can't wait to listen to you, watch you. I uh, really appreciate your time today, Jim. This has uh, been uh, really wonderful for me and, and uh, a, lot, a lot of fun. Thank you, Darren. It's, uh, I appreciate you having me on. Sorry for the beeps and the things that happened in a big guy. I haven't quite figured out how to shut off phone calls and uh, texts while I'm doing uh, Zoom calls, but uh, we'll live with that, and I look forward to uh, look forward to broadcasting a, 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 an incredibly unique playoff, and we'll all learn what it's going to be like together. And that part will be fun. Enjoy watching some hockey on a nice warm day on a back deck with a cold beer. Will do. Thanks so much, Jim. Appreciate it. Yeah.
We'll talk to you very soon. Take care. So long. Thank you. Okay. Bye for now. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Uh, that was a, a fantastic hour. And uh, Jim Houston, legendary broadcaster, just an amazing guy. Really, really appreciate it. Um, Thanks so much for uh, you know taking that time and uh, yeah it's going to be fun. Uh, we're we're reaching unprecedented times. These bubbles are going to be uh, strange and weird, but uh, yeah, I just want to watch the hockey. Uh, I've been starving for it for four or five months, and uh, we're about to embark on the playoffs very soon. Uh, it's very nice of Jim, it's given me that time. Thank you so much to Ronnie Patterson and Gip Joel and uh, all the people that have contributed to this podcast. I'm very excited to share this with the world and, and uh, yeah, let's hope we can get Jim on sometime through the playoffs and get an opportunity to find out how things are going for him. Uh, enjoy, enjoy this podcast and enjoy the NHL playoffs uh, when they, re when they resume. And uh, yeah, thanks so much as always for joining me on the complete sports media podcast. Thank you. Take care. Bye for now.